This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Our guest today is Ashok Gulati, Professor for Agriculture at the Indian Council for Research on International Economic Relations. He's on the Penn campus today, and we will speak to him about his forthcoming talk on campus, titled, Who Will Feed India? Political Economy of Agricultural Policies and Its Implications. Ashok Gulati, welcome to Knowledge at Wharton. Really appreciate your being with us today. Thank you for having me here. <laughs> so, uh, Indian agriculture, uh, when I think about it, seems to be marked by a paradox. Mm-hmm. If we go back to the 60s, the days of the PL480, when... Mm-hmm. Ships were leaving the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, with wheat for India because India was on the verge of starvation. Mm-hmm. We think about th- those days and com- compared to that where Indian agriculture is today, mm-hmm. there has been a dramatic change mm-hmm. for the better mm-hmm. because of technological disruptions and innovations. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is tremendous uh, progress that has been made in, in f- self-sufficiency and even exports Mm -hmm. in terms of food. I think I heard you say in a recent lecture that Mm -hmm. India is now the second larger exporter of cotton Mm -hmm. uh, after China. Mm -hmm. But while there has been so much progress on the one hand, Mm there has also been tremendous distress. Mm -hmm. And and we hear about farmers committing suicide and Mm -hmm. so on because of lack of uh, earning capacity. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could start by exploring this paradox Mm -hmm. And, and, and how, how, how do we explain it and what do we do about it? Great. You know, every society has two sides. Whether the glass is half full or half empty, how you want to look at it. But definitely the worst is over. I think those days of 1960s that you mentioned about... Those were the days when we were importing about 10 to 11 million tons of wheat every year. There was back-to-back drought. And country didn't have enough foreign exchange. If they had spent the entire foreign exchange reserves of the country, they would have imported only 7 million tons of grain. So at that time, U.S. helped through PL480. We survived that. But also we learned a very important lesson because for three days, the ships were stopped, Mm. and there was panic Mm. in India. Mm. And finally, we came to know that the president himself had ordered suspension Mm. because India had issued some statement in favor of Vietnam, Mm. and U.S. was at war with Vietnam at that time. That taught a very important lesson that you cannot rely for your basic food on any country you have to produce yourself. So the priority came very high. Mm. And ultimately, it was the miracle seed, which also was invented or innovated by an American, uh, you know, Norman Borlaug. And those 18,000 tons of seeds of high-yielding varieties were imported from Mexico because he was based in Mexico at that time. And within four or five years, India changed the scene. Mm. And it became self-sufficient in wheat Today, India is the largest exporter of rice in the world. We are the second largest producer of rice as well as wheat in the world. And during uh, 2012, 13, 13, 14, 14, 15, three years, India exported 63 million tons of grains Mm. 
uh, from the country in three years together. So from a massive deficit staring at starvation to a reasonably comfortable position in terms of tonnage and becoming an exporter is a tremendous achievement. But resources are under pressure, water table is under pressure, and if we don't take right policy decisions, and the situation can also reverse back. Now, India is supposed to, the population is projected to surpass China mm-hmm. by 2024. Mm-hmm. What implications will this have for India's food, feed, and fiber needs? Well, you can see that after 2024, we will be the largest uh, population country on this planet. More than that, unlike China, 65% of Indians today are less than 35 years of age. Mm. And an average household spends about 40 to 45% of its expenditure on food. So for the next 20 years, 30 years, the demand for food, feed, and fiber is going to go very fast. Now, if we can't rise to that challenge, it offers a business opportunity also. It offers you how technological innovations can uh, overcome this uh, challenge. But if you don't rise to that occasion, then India can be a very, very big importer of food, again, putting pressures on others. Yeah. No, in fact, I, I wanted to, I was going to ask you about that. Uh, <clears throat> but I'll come back to that in a bit. By 2030, India is expected to have 600 million people mm-hmm. living in the urban areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, what logistical challenges mm-hmm. do you think this will present in terms of moving food from the hinterland sure. to the urban cities? And how can these challenges be addressed? You know, if you look at what this means is that every year we have to create one more Chicago every year till 2030. Now, those Chicago of India are not going to be producing food. Food has to come from the hinterlands. And you need actually building proper value chains, especially for perishable commodities, fruits, vegetables, milk, meat. You need a very advanced value chain investment all along so that up to the consumer when it comes. So it's not just moving through the roads, but in what sort of reefer vans and containers and what sort of cold storages you have in the system and what sort of retailing you have in the system, all those will undergo massive transformation in the next 10, 15 years. What's your assessment of the current status of the infrastructure that caters to these value chains? My feeling is, after having seen where we were, Mm. the worst is over. But we can do much better than what we have done so far. And I think India holds that potential. What you observed in China during the last 15 years, I think that is what is going to be repeated at a global level in India uh, in the next 15 years. China started off reforms in 78. We started off in 91. And I think my feeling is that opens up vast business opportunities for global players to come and look at India now. 
for those of our listeners who may not be familiar with the Chinese experience, mm-hmm. could you walk us through some of the things that happened in China and what might be some of the lessons for India? You know, China's rate of growth for the last 30 years or so had been between 9 to 10 percent on an average. Now, India's rate of growth since reform began in 91 has been hovering at 7 percent per annum. But China had imposed one-child norm in 1981, which they lifted in 2016. So with one-child norm, their per capita incomes increased much faster. That led to explosion of demand. Mm. And accordingly, they had to produce not only for themselves, but also to the world. Till 2002, 3, 3, 4, they were still net exporters of food. But now they are massive importers of food. Mm. Look at soybean. They are importing about 80 million tons of soybean when their domestic production is about 12 million tons. Mm. Mm-hmm. So in China has become a major net exporter of food. And this is a question whether India will go the Chinese way or it will find its own way. Uh, and one major difference is China is a meat-eating society which needs a lot of feed material. Mm. India is still not a big meat-eating society. Uh, per capita consumption is very low, and there are cultural factors not going for beef or pork and all that. So I think the pressure on feed will be much less compared to what the Chinese had to experience. So, you know, economics is one part of the story, rising incomes and rising demand, but cultural factors also come into being. So I think India will not be as much pressed as China was. But still, as you said uh, earlier, there are some challenges uh, with depleting land, with limited land, depleting water Water tables. tables. Mm -hmm. Can India produce enough food Mm -hmm. for the growing population? Mm -hmm. Or do you think the country will become a huge importer of food again? Well, this is, uh, you know, to the extent I can see in the next 10 years or so, At present, right now, we are suffering from overproduction. Prices have collapsed, and farmers are crying that they are not recovering even their costs. Now, one is lack of basic infrastructure to store or process and all that. Just to give you one little example, India today is the largest producer of milk in the world, 177 million tons. Next number is U.S., which is 98 million tons, so massive difference. But we are processing only 21% of our production through organized sector. Mm-hmm. So on one side, there is a massive business opportunity. But if those things don't come into being, then excess production will lead to collapse of prices and farmers will not recover their costs. And that can become a problem and it will hit back the system. So I do feel by 2030... Up to that, India will remain reasonably self-sufficient, self-reliant, I would say, overall. There are things like edible oils where 65% of consumption is being imported. But India, till day, is a net exporter of agricultural products. Mm -hmm. And this may remain so in the next 5 to 10 years. But the challenge will be after that when more in population... uh, rising incomes, and if we don't get our policies right on water or on technology or land, then India can be a big importer. So 
let's talk about the policies since mm-hmm. you brought that up. Uh, what is your assessment of the policies that India has followed so far mm-hmm. uh, over the past few decades? And what has there been their impact, especially on poverty, mm-hmm. malnutrition, and mm-hmm. farmers' incomes? Yeah. You know, policy making in India has been a very razor thin, uh, you know, uh, you have to walk on that uh, because you had a lot of poverty in the country and therefore protecting the poor took always precedent. And what that meant was keep the prices of food low. I think biggest item in the budget is food subsidy, 184,000 crores of rupees. Uh, massive amounts are being doled out. Uh, How much is that in dollars? Uh, it would be like $25 billion mm-hmm. that are given for food subsidy. They are unpaid bills of uh, another uh, $20 billion or so. And so it's $35-$40 billion net food subsidy to protect the poor. But actually bigger subsidy comes by suppressing prices for the farmers. If the price goes up, immediately you put an export ban. You don't allow the private sector to hold stocks. You, you know, restrictions. Some states, classic case of potato in West Bengal. Price went up, they did not allow the potatoes to go to the next state. (laughs) So these types of restrictive policies try to suppress prices. Now, to protect the poor in that process of policy using suppression of prices, you have made the farmer poor. Because the same prices is income. Mm -hmm. So I think the policies were made in 1950s and 60s when there was huge deficit. Mm -hmm. Today we are not in that situation. Mm -hmm. So there is an inbuilt consumer bias in the system in the name of the poor. I think that scene has to change and we have to have a level playing field of the farmers and the consumers. If you want to help certain poor consumers, use an income policy, give them directly whatever you want to give uh, from the general exchequer. Don't try to suppress prices for the farmers because at present you're trying to protect the poor at the cost of the farmers. So if you look at the agricultural policies India has in place today, do you think they help or do they hinder the technological and other changes that are required to to solve the problems you're describing? You know, there are two things. One is adoption of technologies. Right. But technologies are adopted when farmers feel it is profitable for them to do. Mm. So the incentive question is a very critical factor, a catalyst for adoption of technologies. If it doesn't make profit... So profit, one is your yield will go up, but if price collapses more than the increase in yield and you end up by incurring losses, Mm. then why will you adopt that technology? So I think we have to understand that there are two sides of the same coin. One is yield augmentation, Mm. but also there is a fair price that they should get so that it is a profitable business for them. And that is a challenge I think uh, we have to overcome. What what kind what kind of changes do you think are necessary to make sure that farmers have adequate income? Well, uh, two things. On a sustainable manner, you have to increase their productivity. So, agriculture R and D, 
in a sustainable manner so that they can produce more with less resources. Cost should be less. Water consumption should be less. So technologies can help there. Mm -hmm. But you have to ensure good markets for them. The natural process should be remove all the restrictions on markets and try to get the markets right. If the infrastructure is lacking, do that. If the communication lines are information asymmetry is there, try to remove that. Introduce warehouse receipt systems, introduce and scale up futures markets so that better performance of markets comes in. That is more sustainable a solution. Mm -hmm. Now, if you do not do that, then you will end up by giving uh, direct income support to the farmers, which right. in this budget uh, they have just announced. That's right. So and that's the price of not doing reforms in agriculture marketing. What sort of reforms are needed to help Indian agriculture face the impact of climate change? That's a big issue on the horizon. It's already coming in. Uh, two things are clear. That uh, in the northern part, in the what we call the Tarai Belt, the immediately slopes of the mountains, there are going to be increasing floods, greater frequency and greater uh, intensity. But in the Deccan Plateau, which is the western and the southern part more, uh, there are going to be increasing droughts in the country and temperatures are going to rise. So where you need management of water, excess water in the upper reaches, you have to do a lot of irrigation and drought proofing of the country in the western and the southern region. Massive investments are required, but also we have to change the farming practices. Mm -hmm. uh, just to give you an example, in a state like Maharashtra, uh, only 18-19% area is irrigated, but they grow sugarcane on 4% of the cropped area, it is 100% irrigated and takes away 65% irrigation water of the state. Mm -hmm. right. Now, why don't we produce sugarcane in the north where there is ample water in Bihar or eastern UP? Mm -hmm. This is what the sugarcane belt was. Mm -hmm. So with climate change, I think we will have to start valuing water uh, at a much higher priority, uh, price it properly, uh, use best technologies to produce more like drips and sprinklers and others. You can save 50% of water. Uh, all those things we have to start learning. There are technologies which even in the seed, they can do better with less water. Great. So all those technologies we need to get into place. Great. Uh, well, I, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I feel like I have to ask you this question. So as you know, parliamentary elections have been announced mm -hmm. uh, for India. Mm -hmm. What do you think the current state of the agrarian economy will play in shaping the results of the forthcoming election? Well, what one learning that has come from uh, a sort of a trailer before this, uh, the state assembly elections that we had three, four months back, uh, the ruling government... Uh, lost three major states, uh, Chhattisgarh, Madhya Pradesh, and Rajasthan. And one of the realization is that it is the farm distress that has led to that. Now, that is not the only thing. There are many other factors, but this was one of the important factors that led to it. So there has been, to the best of my understanding, a lot of rethinking within the ruling party. And what was announced last month, 
the PM Kisan, uh, where they are going to spend 75,000 crores, which is about uh, 10, 11 billion dollars, uh, direct income support to the farmers. So the beginning is there to rethink the old policy set and try new policy instruments. Now, if it is just for one year, it is more a bait for votes. But if it is a three-year, five-year policy change, and if they can collapse the input subsidies onto that platform, I feel it can be a tectonic shift in policy making for the better. If the incoming government were to ask your advice mm-hmm. on what its top priority should be on agricultural policy, uh, what would you tell them? Agri-market reforms are a low-hanging fruit, but since agriculture is a state subject, the center has to take a lead and steer change. And that has to be done the way GST was done. So somebody from the center should coordinate with the states to do basic things. That APMC markets, which is very restrictive and has been hijacked by commission agents, uh, that needs to change. More competition needs to be brought in, more direct buying from the farmers. Today, if I buy directly from the farmer, uh, contract farming is not allowed in most of the states. Uh, Land lease markets need to be open so that farmers should be free to lease out or lease in uh, land. Now, I feel these are uh, low-hanging fruits, but government political will has to be there to do that. Uh, And that political will comes only when they feel they may lose power. (laughs) (laughs) But after getting into power, they go back to the same uh, routine, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. I think I've come to the uh, end of the questions I had. Are there any questions that you think... I should have asked, but I haven't, that you'd like to talk about? I feel, you know, the bottom line is you must give freedom to the farmers to access the best technologies in the world. Once the scientists have declared it safe, then you should facilitate, government policy should facilitate getting those seeds or getting those, uh, you know, parent stocks of chickens or uh, Uh, fish or anywhere else in the world because if you cannot produce those technologies you should you know it's a global village today the world so if you have done better here can we borrow that from you under whatever the rules of the game are so that freedom to pick up the best technologies and similarly freedom to sell in the best markets today in terms of food Indian prices would be one of the lowest when I come to U.S. and I see, my heavens, you are paying so many dollars for this one kg of this. I can get three kgs in India with that money. So why can't exports take place there? So I think we have to work on both sides, the technology side and on the market side. But the third challenge, as you rightly said, climate change is right on our head. And therefore, sustainability issues should be brought at the same level at which uh, the technology issue or markets issue are. Well, Ashok Gulati, thank you so much for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton. Thank you very much for having me here. Pleasure. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.